Welcome to my podcast. This is a special edition. It's Wednesday morning. We're in the Jewish Journal studios, and I'm here with our political analyst, Dan Schnurr. Thanks, Dan, for coming in. David, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. We haven't slept much the no. past 24 hours. We're here until past midnight, and then you lots were filing go- your story. Lots, lots going on on election night, and I yeah. uh, appreciate you giving me the chance to write for you and your audience, and I'm excited to be here to sift through some of the results with you. Well, we'll be... Uh, <clears throat> promoting your piece today. It's called uh, Anger and Gridlock. And it really was uh, a very special night because sometimes we go, we look at these events like they're sporting events. And in sports, you have one team that wins and one team that loses, which is true of presidential elections. But in the midterms, there's two games. There's the House and the Senate. So I felt last night like you know, a lot of people were craving that big sports-type victory, but nobody got the victory with a capital V. Well, and, and that's the point that I tried to make in the, in, the, in the piece for the journal this week, that everybody went to sleep Tuesday night somewhat angry. On one hand, Democrats were obviously happy about the outcome in the House of Representatives, but they're still angry because Trump is president. And with a maintained and possibly expanded Senate majority, it's probably going to become even easier for him to confirm judges for the next two years. And, of course, Republicans are angry because they lost the House of Representatives. It's going to be a lot tougher for them to get anything done on a policy front. So there is a lot of anger on both sides. And as the polarization and subsequent gridlock in Washington continues over the next two years, uh, that anger almost certainly continues to grow as well. It's interesting. I got an email this morning from someone that uh, showed the loss of house seats uh, going back like, I don't know, 80 some years and 2010. This is in midterm elections from an incumbent president's party. Mm -hmm. And Obama was 63 in 2010. 1994, Clinton was 52. 1958, Eisenhower lost 48. Ford lost 48 in 74, all the way down, and then Bush lost 30. Truman in 1950 lost 29. Reagan, 26. And Trump was like the least, the fewer number of losses tied with Reagan. Well, and what what Trump did more than any president in modern history is devoted himself wholeheartedly, both in terms of time on the campaign trail and in terms of policy pronouncement, to the midterms. Generally, the reason that a president's party loses seats in those first midterm elections is the winning party from the last presidential campaign simply isn't as motivated as the losing party. Mm. Think of it as the politics of hunger. If you don't get invited to White House state dinners anymore, you get hungry and you get motivated and you turn out. And what Trump did is he devoted a tremendous and unprecedented amount of time and effort to turning out a Republican base that normally wouldn't have been as excited in a midterm after a presidential victory, and he pulled out all the stops to rev them up. That almost certainly saved him the Senate and may have uh, kept the Republicans from losing even more House seats. You know, when you think like, you know, a few hundred years ago, they created this system, you know, and it still works then. The system works because you had enthusiasm on both sides. And the Democrats had tremendous enthusiasm and they did their thing and they pulled out the grassroots and they got out the vote. And the other side did it too. And I got to, you know, look back. When you look at the big picture, 
and you figure the system is working, isn't it? It, it? it certainly is. And it's easy to get frustrated, particularly when your side is unsuccessful in an election, whether last night or two years ago or six years ago. But on balance, it really is just a remarkable testament to the genius of the nation's founders to put together a system that created a series of checks and balances at the federal level and also a series of checks and balances between state and local and federal government right. to make sure that even if you lose an election, your voice is still heard in the process. Right. I mean, there's an enormous outpouring of opposition to Donald Trump because of, you know, his incendiary rhetoric and his, you know, we, we can do a huge laundry list of the mistakes that he's made. And the Democrats pushed back and they won the House. And in a way, they... Now they have the power in the House. Well, they, they, they certainly do. And we were talking a minute ago about how Trump motivated his most loyal supporters to turn out. One of the things I talk to my students about, both at USC and UC Berkeley, is I tell them that a candidate has to make a choice between motivating your most loyal supporters on one hand and trying to persuade undecided voters on the other. You really can't do both at once. And the more time you spend trying to motivate your base, that means, by definition, the less time you are talking to those voters in the political center. So Donald Trump, whether it was intuitive or conscious or not, I don't know, he said, I'm going to make a trade. He said, I'm going to turn out my white working class base in a way that they normally don't turn out in midterms, but I'm going to have to trade away those suburban college-educated women who often vote Republican, who turned out Tuesday night in unprecedented numbers for the Democrats. Right. And this is, I mean, if as much as the system works, there's still this underlying concern that you have a collision course between, you know, two distinct visions of America. And at some point, you know, we're yearning for those great leaders who can bring us together. And I don't see one right now, Dan. Well, I, I, I wish I could be more encouraging on this front. Trump, for worse or for better, has decided that it's not his job as the president to do that. But I think to be, to be fair, if you look at his two most recent predecessors, I would argue to you that neither Barack Obama or George W. Bush came to the presidency with the necessary experience in coalition building in order to overcome the kind of divisions you're talking about. Mm -hmm. George W. Bush was governor of the deep red state of Texas, really never had to work with Democrats except the most conservative types. Barack Obama was a state legislator in the deep blue state of Illinois never to spend much time with the Republicans. My guess is that whether it's in 2020 or 2024, the first post-Trump president is someone with a more significant amount of experience who understands the benefit and the value of reaching out across party lines to form the kind of coalitions that you're talking about. Uh, I was reading last night, there's a caucus in Congress called the Problem Solvers Caucus. <laughs> It never comes up in the news, Dan. You never hear about those. Well, and, and it's, it's a testament to how polarized the Congress has become, that while it's a nice title, my own, pri my own personal opinion is that the Problem Solvers Caucus really doesn't get a great deal done. And there's actually been some articles this week, both in the Washington Post and Politico, that said while it's an admirable sentiment that elected representatives of both parties want to work across party lines, so heavily partisan has become the Congress mm -hmm. that they haven't really accomplished all that much. So let's look forward now. Uh, are things going to get more polarized, less polarized? What do you anticipate? Well, this is the question about Donald Trump. 
uh, if he continues on the course that he set over the last two years, then I suspect you'll see an even more bitterly divided Washington, D.C. than we've seen in the past. And of course, the Democrats, with control of one of the two uh, houses of Congress, has the power not just to stop any Trump policy proposals or legislation they want, but they're going to be investigating him and his administration 10 different ways from Sunday, and they've already made that, made that clear. That said, there's already some suspicion and, in fact, some worries in conservative circles that Trump, who has not been a Republican for that many years, may see the key to his own survival come 2020 is to finding a way to work with the Democrats, to working with Pelosi and Schumer and their allies. Well, and trying to predict Donald Trump is something I don't have the courage to do. Maybe you can. <laughs> you know, it's, you've just outlined just a fascinating scenario. We have two complete opposite possibilities. One of them is just total warfare. And he tweeted this morning, uh, said, if you think you're going to spend taxpayer money on investigations, then we can do the same thing. Two can play that game. And they can start an uh, investigation in the Senate, which is really warlike talk. I think it's instructive to watch Trump as he has approached the Chinese government's leadership over the last couple of years. On some er in some areas, and not just in China, in Russia, in North Korea, uh, and elsewhere, um, he, in some areas, he's very confrontational and very aggressive. In other areas, he looks for ways to work together. And, and sometimes it's both. Somebody, sometimes he's confrontational as a gesture, as posturing, right, to get to a, to gain more leverage. Well, I think he, he, here's the thing that I would say about Donald Trump, without trying to predict which of these two courses or some combination that he takes. And I say this neither as criticism or compliment, but it's worth remembering that Donald Trump really isn't a Republican. At least he isn't one by any traditional standards. What he is, and I don't not mean this as a criticism or compliment either, what Donald Trump is is a takeover artist. And not too many years ago, he looked at the two political parties and he saw the Republican Party as being more ripe for a takeover than the Democrats. If he'd run for ten, president 10 years earlier, he probably would have run for a Democrat. He took over the, Demo the Republican Party, infused the sense of populism and nationalism in its ranks. But I don't know that he's obligated the Republican Party today. Uh, because he doesn't have the kind of long-term relationships with it. He could certainly pivot and work with the other side. Oh, it's just, that's a fascinating possibility. I mean, on the one hand, because he's also a deal maker. He loves to make deals. So I could see how if the um, Democratic Congress would show some flexibility and possibilities in terms of making some kind of a compromise deal on immigration reform, I can see him smelling, you know, a deal. And really trying to do something. Immigration is going to be a tough one, although Donald Trump no doubt is full of surprises. I think the areas that are, might be even more ripe uh, for some potential collaboration is one on infrastructure, mm -hmm. roads, construction, transportation, buildings. That, and that seems sort like of a thing. Trump one. Well, that's, that's part of who he is professionally. Right. And they started talking about this two years ago and it got bogged down not in whether or not they wanted to take on massive construction and infrastructure development, but whether it would be paid for with public or private funds. And then the other issue, of course, which the administration and Congress have already begun moving on, is confronting the opioid tragedy uh, that this nation faces. Is that a potentially easy win? I don't know that it's an easy win, but it's probably Relative one where there's, the more, yeah, where there's more potential common ground between him and the Democrats on infrastructure, on an opioids 
immigration would mean going back to his base and asking them to rethink a lot of the things he's talked to them about over the two years. Right. That might be a little bit tougher. Right. But again, we don't predict this man. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you have um, uh, Democratic Congress. They've been in the wilderness for a couple of years. And I wrote last night that any doctor will tell you that if you gorge yourself after you've starved for so long, it's not good for the system. So you, you, you wonder if they're going to be tempted to take revenge on Trump and start you know, a two-year process of impeachment hearings and subpoenas and so forth. And that's definitely a sort of destructive direction, isn't it? Ron Klain, uh, the, who was the chief of staff to then-Vice President Al Gore, wrote a piece for The Washington Post this week warning about just that kind of access, David, and you exactly nailed it. He said that while there certainly are areas of the Trump administration that ought to be investigated at some point, that in fact an emphasis on policy is a much better path forward for the Democrats in the House. And not too long ago, Henry Waxman, our former congressman from here in West L.A. and Beverly Hills, made similar points publicly. Of course, you know, he oversaw any number of investigations against the Bush administration back in the day. And he warned his former colleagues to be careful, not right. to, you know, to set them all aside, but to proceed with the kind of caution is, uh, that uh, doesn't obscure a policy agenda that's more relevant to the daily lives of voters. Correct. And the Democratic Party is hardly a unified party these days. There's some severe divisions within the party. Well, and are these more likely to come to the surface now that they do have power? Well, when you're, when you're in the majority, the stakes automatically get higher right. because you have the responsibility for governing. And you're not unified by a common hatred. Precisely. Um, and even if that common hatred still exists, you do have some of the responsibility of governance. And the challenge for Pelosi or whoever becomes speaker, there still seems to be some question on that front, is how do you take those very aggressive, most progressive uh, members of the caucus and reconcile their much more ambitious goals with the more measured approach of Democrats representing red states in more exurban or rural areas. Mm -hmm. um, it is a significant division. And getting you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on one hand um, and Ryan Lamb, the very moderate you know, Democrat who got elected uh, in rural Pennsylvania last night on the other, getting them to set aside their own campaign promises for the greater good, that's a test of leadership. Now, from what you've seen of the results uh, so far, what statement has been made? Is this a statement that reinforces the strength of this new progressive wing, quote-unquote socialist wing? I'd say the both. Um, the, the bases of both parties um, emerged from Tuesday night's election more powerful within their parties. The most conservative of Republicans and the most liberal of Democrats now have much more sway in their respective parties than they did previously. Um, when you say the most, you mean the Ocasio-Cortez, that what they call the new socialist wing? Precisely. And you've seen a very aggressive push uh, for, for single-payer health care. Senator Sanders has talked uh, about... Uh, free college, but I think free everything. <laughs> exactly, um, and just as F Paul Ryan and John Boehner before him really struggled to keep the Freedom Caucus and the most conservative Republicans in line, 
Pelosi or whoever becomes the speaker is going to face a similar challenge telling uh, a very uh, progressive Democrat, particularly a young one, saying, look, I know you ran on a very aggressive agenda, but we have to govern. So you need to you need to rein it in a little bit. If I can just add one thing on this, David, whether it's health care or college tuition, there's plenty of issues that divide both parties. But the one, as you know, that concerns me most um, is Israel. And Jerry Nadler, uh, who will almost certainly be the chair of the House Judiciary Committee for the Democrats going forward, identified last week what he called roughly half a dozen House Democrats who he felt were not sufficiently supportive of Israel and had voiced... Problematic um, statements. Yeah, my words, not his. Statements that would give concern to those of us who are deeply committed to the safety and security of the state of Israel. And he said, well, it's only five or six of them. But just as there's a small voice of BDS, a small number of BDS Democrats in one caucus, there's a small number of more nationalist Republicans in the other. Mm-hmm. I would argue to you that for the American Jewish community, the biggest political challenge is not – the biggest political threat is not one political party or the other, but factions within both of the mm-hmm. two political parties. And that we as American Jews need to be willing to call out those potentially dangerous voices – both from the far right and the far left. You know, it's, it's interesting. It looks like there's the moderates in each party have more in common with each other than they do with the extreme wing of their parties. Funny. Back, back when I was a Republican, and as you know, I'm now an independent, no-party preference voter, I was flying back from Sacramento one day, and I happened to be sitting next to a newly elected state assembly member. This is many years ago by a guy by the name of Bob Hertzberg. And Bob Hertzberg and I got to talking. By the time we landed at Burbank Airport... He said something like, I like you. Are you sure you're a Republican? (laughs) And I said, yeah, I'm a Republican, but I'm on the 48-yard line. He said, I'm a Democrat, but I'm on the 48-yard line. We're only four yards apart. Uh, You've got to write that. So there is common ground there, um, but it's harder and harder to find. Um, Make that the lead of your next article. I I love that anecdote. Well, he's 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 a wonderful guy, and I agree with him on some things and don't agree with him on others. But what someone like Bob does very, very well is he finds ways to work with people with whom he agrees not on all things, but some things. You know this, David. There's a famous quote from Ronald Reagan. Reagan once said, somebody who disagrees with me 20% of the time isn't my enemy, because that means he agrees with me 80% of the time. What I tell my students on top of that is I said, somebody who disagrees with me 80% of the time isn't my enemy either. He's somebody I can work with 20% of the time. Mm-hmm. I just got to work a little bit harder to find that common ground. Do you think what's made this so much more complicated is just people have a personal aversion to Donald Trump, the man, his character, the way he talks? And, you know, we're just not used to a president acting that way. Do you think that sort of covered up issues of policy and policy agreements and disagreements? You know? I, I think that's right. It's worth noting, and you can give the credit to Donald Trump or to Barack Obama or to anyone else you like, but it is worth noting that the American economy uh, is enjoying a period of remarkable growth and that most American voters of both parties recognize how well the economy is doing. And your point is exactly the right one. Trump is not getting the kind of credit for that that a president normally would. And a lot of it, not all of it, uh, some of it is policy differences on other areas, uh, legitimate policy differences. But a lot of it is simply persona and a more confrontational approach that takes someone who might be willing to look past a policy difference and makes them that much more angry and that much more motivated in the other direction. Also, do you think people are threatened by his vision of America, which is more 
I don't know, nationalist, for lack of a better word, uh, that seems to go against some of the, you know, cool new modern trends of today. He's sort of almost, you know, let's come back to a America first kind of approach. There's something that a lot of people in the democratic world are unattracted to with that. Well, I think that's a, I think that's a really, really good point. And two different voters or two different communities can define patriotism in entirely different ways. There are some people who've worked very, very hard over the years who feel that the America that they've worked hard to become a part of is slipping away from them. And Trump in some ways speaks to those people and says, no, it's, you know, this, this country owes you a great debt for everything you've done. There's a lot of other Americans who feel like this, uh, that, that, that Trump's definition of, of America doesn't have room for them. And what uh, a number of Democratic leaders have done very well is to say, we want to make sure that you have a place in this America, too. Mm -hmm. The type of leader that you were talking about earlier, David, the kind of unifying leader that we haven't seen in this country in some years, is going to be a man or a woman who's able to say both to that working class white factory worker and to that 24-year-old barista, mm -hmm. it's your America, but it's his, too, or hers, too. And we thought is... it was Obama then. So I <laughs> voted for him. I'll never forget his speech. Yeah. There's no red America. There's no blue America. There's just the United States of well, America. I'll never it, forget that. If it were that easy. <laughs> yeah, if it were that easy. For me, the key word is balance. Because, you know, there's a fascinating article by Shelby Steele in the Wall Street Journal a few days ago where he tries to explain why there's this appearance now of America that is full of injustice, Right. You, everywhere you turn, and the media is part of that because, you know, there's an incentive to sort of dramatize conflict and so forth. But then when you compare the, how far America's come in terms of the injustices that were prevalent in the 60s and 70s, we've come so far. It just doesn't look that way. And his explanation is that the, the movement of the left that came out of the 60s when there were some serious injustices in the South and with civil rights and women's rights and gay rights and so forth, you know, so much of these injustices have been taken care of. But because their source of power comes from combating injustice, they, they need injustice as a source of power. There's an incentive to manufacture and magnify injustice, which creates a distorted view of America as an unjust country. Well, because a couple of important points there. Um, I believe as strongly as I believe anything, that one of the best ways to fix an American, uh, a broken American political system is to restore and expand the amount of civics education offered in our public schools for just, for, for just the reason that you mentioned. Most California public high schools require one single semester of civics, actually 15 weeks of civics and American government and geography, all crammed into 15 weeks in either 11th or 12th grade. I'm making a note of that for another one of your columns. So think about yeah. this for a second. Um, we're telling our country's next generation of leaders that this democracy stuff is so unimportant. We're not going to bother talking to you about it for your first 10 years of school. Yet we want you to turn around 18 months later and magically become reliable voters and responsible citizens. I think it's important to point out the injustices and, in fact, the atrocities that have occurred over our country's history. But I also think that if you're going to bring a community together, you do have to, as you correctly pointed out, David, point to the successes and the achievements as well. Otherwise, there is no unifying force. Right. I mean, it's just a glass half empty dynamic that we've seen for the past few years. And, 
You know, I mean, I, I'm a huge America lover. I'm incredibly grateful for the freedoms and opportunities that I see here. I'm all for fighting injustice, but I'm also for not creating a view of America as just an unjust country. And I think that's really distorted the conversation, if you ask me. There's a lack of balance. I, I think that's right. And I'll go back to a point that you made earlier. And I say this both on the left and the right. Victimhood mm. is very intoxicating. Mm. It's really easy once you feel you've suffered an injustice, even a real one, again, whether from the left or the right, that once you've, claim, you know, once you've claimed yourself a victim, you don't really have any responsibility to fix anything. You mm -hmm. can just say, oh, look what they did to me. And whether conservative or progressive or moderate, you've almost absolved yourself of being part of the solution. I went to, one of the things I'm, I, I'm getting to do this semester, which I'm really, really excited by, after years of teaching at the college level, I'm teaching a class in leadership and advocacy this semester, just a five-part class over at the Yule Yeshiva Boys School. Um, over on Pico. And they're just amazing young men over there. And last week, as you might guess, we were talking about the tragedy in Pittsburgh. And the conversation very quickly began on whose fault it was, who allowed this to happen, did Donald Trump inflame them, should there have been armed guards. And I said, guys, I want to teach you an important lesson about leadership. I said, Leaderships don't, leaders don't look to lay blame. Leaders look to fix things. Mm. So you are certainly entitled to your opinions about whose fault this is. But if you want to be leaders in your community, I encourage you to think not about whose fault it was, but what can be done to make sure it doesn't happen again. And I think that's an important lesson, not just for high school students, but for all of us, is it's really easy to blame someone else for you not having the kind of life that you think you deserve to have. Right. But what leaders and real citizens do is they find ways to make it better. Right. I, I think, you know, Trump has sort of fed into this uh, victimhood mentality because he's so obviously problematic with so many of his comments that he makes it easy for people to feel like a victim and to point blame. And I think when you pull back and try to act like a leader and look for solutions, that's when things get complex. But if you frame an issue in an emotional way. For example, let's say you frame the immigration problem as it's wrong and morally disgusting to separate a mother from her child, you know, at the border. Well, then there's no discussion. It's, there's no, it's absolutely correct. Or if you frame the immigration problem as we can't allow immigrant, we can't allow thugs and gangsters to come in on our borders and, you know, and, and uh, threaten our, our citizens, then again, uh, but when you pull back and try to look at the big picture and try to find solutions, that's where it gets complicated and people have a reluctance to go there. You don't see it on CNN. You don't see it in the debates that uh, uh, in, in the mainstream media. That's where we're losing the complexity. Well, I, I think you're making such an important point, David, which is that winning an argument is very satisfying. It's very cathartic. But winning an argument is not the same as solving a problem. Um, one of the classes I've gotten to teach at SC over the years is a course called Case Studies in Modern Leadership. And we talk about leaders from politics, from business, from nonprofits, even from the military and from sports. And one of the concepts that I try to get across to the students is when we talk about political leadership, I said, guys, I'm going to put this in terms that a USC student can understand. I said, there's an essential difference between politics and football. I said, the difference is that in politics, the victories come in between the 40-yard lines. And it doesn't matter how smart you are, doesn't matter how determined you are, doesn't even matter how correct you are. As long as you want to, want to operate in a democracy rather than a monarchy, you've got to be willing to come out of your own end zone. 
You've got to be willing to give something to the other side in order to find that common ground. And you might not get everything you want, but you'll get a good portion of it. If all you do is lay blame and point fingers and scream from under the shadows of your own goalposts, not much chance of progress. You know, it's funny. I wonder if Trump missed an opportunity to go beyond his base, because you were talking earlier about he's just made the decision to double down on his base, which is the white working class. Uh, I'm not an expert in econ the economy, but you know, from all the numbers I've seen, lowest unemployment among Hispanics, lowest unemployment among African Americans. I mean, these are not the traditional base of Donald Trump. And I wonder if he missed an opportunity to reach out to those groups and say, look, I've taken care of you because your situation is a lot better under me than it was under President Obama. I, yeah, I, I read a fascinating article, and I wish I could give credit to remember who the author was to give him or her credit, but they actually went, didn't even go quite as far as you did. They said not only if Trump had reached out uh, to his strongest opponents, but if he simply had kept a lower profile over the last two years, and this author, whoever he or she was, said essentially, suppose the president of the United States had barely spoken in public for the last two years. Oh, that's a brilliant insight. There'd be occasional Shut articles about why is the president such a hermit, but you'd have a flourishing economy. What and perhaps, a brilliant, it's one of the smartest insights I've heard. Just shut up for <laughs> two years and all they'll talk about is the best economy in what, 40, 50 years or whatever but, they're saying. But for all the reasons we've talked about, Trump has decided not just over the course of his political career, but his prior business and media career, that the best way to unify people behind you is to unify them against something or someone on the other side. Now, that's not unique to Trump. It's not even unique to politics. If I want to get my USC students really riled up, I make fun of the UCLA football team, and all of a sudden, they're all on my side. It's a you know, time-worn technique of bringing people together. Yeah, he's always fighting. It's, it's, there's something tragic about that. I can understand fighting during the election season to win, but then once you enter the White House, do you really want to fight? I mean, I think this has been his biggest miscalculation, his biggest mistake, and maybe he just can't help himself because this is who he is. But had he tried to be more of a leader and a unifier when he came into power, it might have made a huge difference when you just see the numbers. No, no, hardly anyone's talking about his accomplishments. If, if you read some of the biographies of Trump uh, that examined his life prior to politics, you really do get a sense that this is who he is, that he came out of Queens with a chip on his shoulder, that the downtown Manhattan elites, quote unquote, mm -hmm. wouldn't take him seriously, and that raging against the machine was the way he created uh, an opportunity for himself the way he created attention for himself, and the way he created support for himself. Everyone's a victim of their own success. And if that worked for him in real estate and in media, it's no small wonder he tried the same approach when it came to politics. You wonder now what conclusions is he going to make from these elections last night? The fact that he lost the House, that the Republicans lost the House. Is he going to is this going to make him rage more against the machine, create more sort of... You know, incendiary attacks. Well, there, there's a school of thought that this actually helps him a little bit in that it allows him to, to use the Democratic House as a foil. Mm. Quote, the reason we didn't get anything done was because of all of those horrible right. Democrats. Right. But I suspect when push comes to shove and when those investigations really do kick in, he's going to miss Paul Ryan a lot more than he thinks he will. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I mean... You know, are we in for two years of another 
soap opera? I, I mean, how can it get worse? Then? Well, that's one prediction I feel absolutely comfortable making. <laughs> we are in for two more years of a soap opera. If for no other reason than Donald Trump learned over the course of his previous careers, that creating that kind of drama and uncertainty, bringing back your audience for next week's episode, mm-hmm. is the key to maintaining that audience. So the one, the one absolutely safe prediction we can make is more, even more drama in the, last, in the next two years than in the last two years. Yeah, I mean, in an odd way, he sort of called the bluff of the, of the press because, you know, we've been complaining for years that uh, politicians are not transparent, they always use talking points, they use euphemism, they never tell us what they really think, and then finally here comes this guy who tells us everything that's on his mind. You know, it's like, sorry we asked. Well, that... He called our bluff. You know, if you are that unemployed factory worker, then this is authenticity, the authenticity you've been looking for. Right. And if you are one it of Trump's... It feels like an anti-politician kind and of And if you are one of Trump's strongest opponents, you want a candidate who's just as authentic, but on your side. Right. It's right. like, you know, you've, you've heard the old joke that a special interest is on the other side. Um, yeah, on my side, it's a defender of the American way of life. Oh, right. Well, maybe you put your finger on something here. Authentic is for somebody who agrees with me. When they disagree with me, they're just as authentic, but they're just a boor. Right. And, and if you're a wrecking ball and what you're wrecking is something I'm, I abhor and I hate, which is, you know, this elitist establishment that cares only for themselves and doesn't care for the people and this, uh, you know, bureaucracy. And if that's what you're wrecking, I, I kind of I'm I don't I like your wrecking ball. And he's a disruptor. Guy's a wrecking ball. And the, and the polls show that Trump's strongest support is almost verbatim make the point that you just did. He's given it to them. He's pushing back. Right. And there's some truth to that. Well, let's let's take one particular policy issue where I'll admit some guilt. So over my years in politics, I had always been a very, very strong supporter of of expanded free trade. And we've known over the years, as we know now, that expanded trade with other countries creates some economic winners and some economic losers. And for many, many years, the elites of both parties, myself included, said, yeah, we know there's some economic losers, but there are a lot more winners, so that's good enough. Well, try telling that to somebody who's lost their job Mm. because of trade, saying, well, it's good for the overall economy, so just quit your whining. That person is looking for someone to talk to his or her concerns in a way that most politicians don't. And depending on some of their other leanings, they turn to either Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders because at least they're being listened to. Especially if there's a sense that some countries are ripping us off, like China. Right. And if you, if you benefit from international trade, you don't worry that maybe you don't accomplish quite as much as you could have otherwise. But if you're losing because of it, if you're harmed by it, and all you hear from the leaders of both parties is how good this trade stuff is, you get resentful and you look for someone who's going to give voice to those resentments. I, I think that's one thing he has done is he hates getting ripped off. And he did identify, you know, things that previous administrations tolerated, which is unfairness in some of the deals. With and the his po- tough approach is kind of, I think it looks like it got us a better deal with NAFTA. Again, if you read some of the biographies that have been written about him from his tr- pre-political years, what you see is that aside from uh, enjoying public and media attention, perhaps the single greatest motivating force in Donald Trump is not to look like a sucker. Mm. 
and the lengths he will go to to not look appear as if he is being taken advantage of clearly is a great motivator. And in the trade debate, that's something that's certainly worked to his political benefit. Is there going to be a difference in terms of the relationship with Israel now that the Democrats have the House? Boy, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I have to admit I don't have a good enough sense yet as to how much sway this still relatively small, small cohort mm-hmm. in the Democratic caucus will have. Um, those who've spoken out very strongly on behalf of the Palestinians, those who've supported the BDS movement and so on. I don't know. Mm-hmm. How much the Democratic leadership is going to listen to them? Um, I suspect in Congress it's probably not going to have much of an impact. Where I'm concerned, David, and I say this not as a partisan, where I worry is in the next presidential election. When in a contested primary, support from the base becomes extremely important. Mm. I think it becomes much more difficult for even a leading Democrat who's a tried and true friend of Israel to, to stand be too up blunt, to, to, to be s- too open with it. Precisely, mm. given the potential political repercussions. Yeah, that's uh, that's something we definitely have to keep an eye on. Well, that's a conversation for another day. We got, well, actually, the 2020 presidential campaign's already started, right? It definitely it has started. Mm. Uh, will the Democrats put up a candidate that will have a real good chance? Because, I mean, there's so many possible candidates, and you have some from the far left and some more moderates. Who's got the best chance to beat Trump? Well, my own opinion is that the candidate who can best reach out to those working class voters, particularly Mm -hmm. in the Rust Belt states, Mm -hmm. is the best position to do so. And so I think a candidate like Joe Biden or like Sherrod Brown, the recently the newly reelected governor of Ohio, Mm -hmm. are the kind of candidate best positioned there. On the other hand, um, the messages, one of the messages came out very clearly on the Democratic side from Tuesday night's election is the ascendancy of female political leaders Mm -hmm. to much greater levels of influence, both qualitatively and quantitatively. And between Kirsten Gillibrand in New York, Kamala Harris here in California, Amy Klobuchar in Minnesota, there's no shortage of potential female presidential candidates, Elizabeth Warren, of course, in Massachusetts. And early public opinion polling shows that those female candidates tend to run best against Trump more so than uh, the male Democrats. Mm. So. Is there any chance that Nikki Haley, that Trump will say, you know, I've done my four years and pass the baton to someone like Nikki Haley to, with the Democratic banner? Boy, you know, if you had asked me, <laughs> if you'd asked me one year and 51 weeks ago, I would have said I could see Trump walking away in four years simply proclaiming victory. But he clearly likes this job. Does he? And we'll see if a series of Democratic House investigations into this administration's conduct change how much he likes it. I see. But as much as he's been enjoying he seems to have been enjoying himself pretty, uh, to a pretty tremendous level over the last several weeks. Because you got to wonder, you know, Dan, if you connect two dots, right? Yeah. You take the state of the economy and so many of the good things that have happened and you connect it to a leader like a Nikki Haley, like decent and... Good character. Well, I, I, I suspect that Nikki Haley is probably a more likely presidential candidate in 2024 okay. than in 2020. Right. Uh, she's she's fairly young, and it appears that she and her team are smart enough to understand that the better best way to replace Trump is with the support of his people mm. rather than taking them on 
full-on There's something exhausting about the thought of, of another six years of Trump, let alone, you know, another well, two years. I'll offer you this. It's exhausting. Like you, like you, in addition to reading about politics, I spend a lot of time reading about uh, reading economic and business news. And the smartest economists I know predict that the next significant economic downturn in this country will come in 2021. Mm-hmm. So for those listeners who have a vested interest in seeing Trump defeated in 2020, the timing of a 2021 recession is probably a little bit less than ideal. Well, well on that note, <laughs> uh, Dan, thank you very much for coming in on short notice. And all you listeners, please look forward to his political analysis in the Jewish Journal and go on JewishJournal.com for daily coverage. Thanks, Dan. Thank you so much for having me, David. I really appreciate it.